Amen. Well, uh, if you don't know me, my name is Pastor Matt. I'm associate pastor and elder here at Living Hope, and I uh, work with discipleship and youth primarily, and uh, I am glad to be able to preach the word to you this morning. Uh, if you have your uh, Bibles, uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke today, chapter 12, as we're continuing our series on the parables of Jesus, stories of the kingdom. If there are blue Bibles in the back table, if you'd like to use those, I'll give you a shortcut. It's on page 871. If it's, you're using your own Bibles, you're on your own. I don't know what page number it's on. But uh, that's where we're going to be this morning, talking about the parable of the rich fool. And I just want to begin with a little bit of a confession this morning, just being a little vulnerable. Amazon Prime, how many of you are Prime members by chance? Maybe I should have asked who's not a Prime member, but uh, is one of the most amazing and terrible things that has ever happened to me is when Amazon Prime came out. I love shopping on the Amazon Prime. Uh, there's just something, it, it's, everything is so accessible, everything is, is, is cheap, and uh, whenever I'm looking at a product, I, I get to look at all the reviews and everything else, and when they release two-day shipping, it was amazing. Of course, there's problems with it, no doubt about it, but my biggest problem is, is there's too many options. I make full use of the wish list option. I have many lists of all the different items that I want, and I have them broken up into categories. Camping, tools, nonfiction books, fiction books, guitar pedals, and so forth, right? Um, board games, just all the different things. And then I realize, you know what, there's an even better way to do this. I add them to my cart, and then I save them for later. Okay, so they're there, because then you get notified when the price changes. So when it gets cheaper, that's when you can pull the trigger. I checked this morning, and I have 116 things in my save for later card. <laughs> and me and my wife are very different on this. Every now and then, she'll be looking through her purse, and she'll pull out an Amazon gift card, and it'll be like July, and she's like, oh, I got this for Christmas. I'm like, how did you not spend it already? And uh, Because I always have things in my Amazon wish list, right? And, and, and in my cart. Because, and this kind of like it reveals something that we could always have more. And, and some of you maybe are more like my wife where she's like, I don't, I don't need anything. And she buys something and then she feels guilty about it, you know, but, I, but I, it's easy for me to spend through those Amazon gift cards or when we have a little bit of money, right? And there's, and there's but there's a, a danger here, right? Obviously, and that we can, we can easily develop a heart that is always wanting more stuff, right? We see something that we want. It, it looks like it would improve our life or make life easier or just give us a little bit of pleasure, right? And we get excited about it, and, I, and you add it to your cart, and you, and you hit send, you know, or you, you pay for it, and then there's the wait. Then there's like the two days or whatever where you're waiting for it to come to your mailbox, and you get it, and then you pull it out, and you open it, and it's there, and you're excited. And then like 20 minutes later, you're like... I need to order something else. Maybe, maybe that's not you. But for some of us, it is. Maybe it's not Amazon. It's something else for you. But I think many of us, most of us, struggle with a heart that's always wanting more, that struggles to be content and satisfied with what we have, with what the Lord has given us. Part of what this is is sometimes called greed. Other times it's called covetousness. And what we're going to talk about today has to do with that very idea in this passage in Luke. So I'm going to read it to you, Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, 
man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for... I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, This night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the Word of God. And so we begin our our time in the Word this morning. Uh, Just a little background. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he is still drawing large crowds to himself. He is going around, traveling, teaching, and there is something fantastic about his words, right? People recognize there is a weight to them. He's drawing crowds in the thousands. This takes place after the feeding of the 5,000. He is verbally sparring with the brightest minds of the day in Jewish culture, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, and he is uh, leaving them dumbfounded, right? They're not able to, to combat what he's saying. Crowds of people are interacting with him, and not just his disciples, those who are just interested. They are attracted to him, maybe even amazed at his teaching. But there's others who just kind of want to see what all the hubbub is about, right? They're following just because he's a local celebrity, a man of prominence. There's always going to be that. There's always going to be people who, you know, who, who follow along just because they're part of the crowds, but they're not necessarily following or believing the teachings of Christ. And then perhaps it's one such man, just a follower of the crowd, who asks Jesus this question. He says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Some of you may have been in a situation, a sad situation, where you've had to deal with a parent who has died, and there's a will that has to be divided, and there's contention, right? It's never fun, right? And there's, there's questions like, who gets what? Did, did so-and-so get their fair share? Or disagreements like, Dad said I could always have this. Well, it's not in the will. What do you do? It might be a situation like that. In such cases, it's not uncommon or unheard of for an outside a uh, person outside party to intervene. On a small scale, I feel like I do this with my kids all the time, right? There's a toy, and I, I, I hear about it when they come in, and they're both holding on to it, screaming, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. And they go back and forth, and now I am the arbiter and the judge, all right? And most of the time, I don't really care. I just want peace and quiet. That's the secret, right? I want peace and quiet, Right? But in this situation, he says, teacher, will you tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me? Now, and this man must be thinking, this is a man of great influence, right? It's a, a teacher. Is, isn't, surely this man's a peacemaker. Surely he can sort this out for me. And Jesus answers very interestingly. He says, man, who put me as a judge or arbiter over you? And I remember like reading that, it's like, whoa, that's kind of, does that mean... Isn't this man just asking a simple question? Jesus, why is your response that way? 
And there's a couple reasons. Jewish law at this time, you know, had pretty clear rules about who inherited what. And at this time, the oldest son received a greater portion of inheritance. It was his birthright. Think about how, uh, you know, the brothers in the Old Testament, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older brother. He received a, a greater portion. He had a birthright, and, uh, and he gave it away, you know, foolishly, and there's um, to his younger brother. So we assume from that this is probably one of the, or if not the only, younger brother in this situation, because if he was the eldest, he would have been the one to have control. So if this man is speaking to Jesus... Maybe he's experiencing true injustice if his older brother is truly withholding his rightful inheritance. But if that was the case, there would have been courts. He would have had a way to go to others who were legally in charge of this and said, hey, I have a case. Can we, can we deal with this? Jesus had no legal authority in a human sense. Now, of course, he's king of kings and lord of lords, and he has all authority in heaven and earth. But in this situation, he's talking about on the purely human plane, right? He, he, he is not a judge in a human court. So this is a matter that should have been settled by the courts. This man doesn't really understand who Jesus is or what his mission is, right? He, he came to listen and, uh, he, and, he, and he saw the Jewish leaders and the, ver- and the teachers verbally sparring with him. And, and he walks and, and they walk away the loser. He says, hey, this is a man who knows how to get things done, how to, how to get an argument done. So this, surely this, this man thinks, I can get this guy to talk to my brother and then he'll listen. You know, he's witnessed Jesus' ministry. He's heard his teachings and all this. And the conclusion that he comes to is... Well, really, I said, the conclusions he comes to should be, hey, this man has thousands of people listening to him. He is, he is having conversations with the greatest religious leaders of the day and leaving them speechless. His conclusion should have been, I should probably listen to what this man has to say. I, whoever this Jesus is, I, I need to listen to what he has to say. But instead, his heart says, I wonder if I can get Jesus to, to say what I want him to. That, that's his heart, right? He, he says, hey, this is a man of influence. I wonder if I can get him to do what I want. And, and this is not like a new thing, right? This is still true even in our day. You've seen politicians do it, right? Say, oh, I'm a, you know, Jesus is a, a real recognized figure, and so if I can you know, peel a Bible verse somewhere and, and, and get it to you know, support my policy or my view, you know, then, you know, then I'll, I'll get Jesus to say what I want him to say so it supports my cause, on all different sides of the political aisle. We've seen the media do it, but we've also seen Christians do it as well. Do we come to the text saying, Jesus, I want to listen to what you have to say? Or do we say, you know, I wonder if I can get Jesus to say what I already kind of believe and feel and get him to support my, my views? Let us be, that, I think that's the difference between being a disciple and just being part of the crowd. But Jesus is not fooled. The fact that this man is going to him rather than to the appropriate legal authorities really tells him that he doesn't have a legitimate case. That this man is really just dealing with greed. That he does not like the fact that his older brother is getting more than he is. And and maybe this man is genuinely a poor man. He doesn't have a lot, and so this means a lot to him. But regardless, the reason why Jesus responds the way he does, why he cuts the chase, is because he knows the hearts of all men and women. He knows what's really going on here. This man doesn't have a legitimate case. And so he rebukes him. Why are you coming to me with this? If you have a legitimate case, you know the authorities to go to. I'm not going to do your dirty work for you. 
Then he turns to the crowds, because he's going to use this as an opportunity, not just to instruct this man, but to instruct everyone. And he says this in verse 15, be watchful, be on guard against all greed or covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. There's a lot of wisdom there, right? One of those things that Jesus says that we really need to to listen to. He warns you to, to be careful, to be watchful over your own hearts, to guard against greed, to guard against covetousness. And really, what, what is that? Right? Covetousness. Do not covet. It's, it's not a word that we commonly use or maybe think about a lot. And greed is not li- unlike pride or lust where it's kind of like a hidden sin, right? It's something that is, that is in your heart that, that breaks out into action, but it starts in the heart. You remember the Ten Commandments, the Eighth Commandment, you know, forbids you from stealing. Do not take what does not belong to you, right? Instead, uphold the rights of personal property. The Tenth Commandment kind of goes a little further and gets to the heart. It forbids you from coveting what rightfully belongs to your neighbor. Exodus 20, 17 says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Coveting is a lot like lust. It's a strong desire, a hunger, a need, a, ooh, I I want that. I see that, and I I want that. I, I have to have that. It's a strong desire, a longing to possess something, right? And here it is clear that it can be a person. It could be somebody else's spouse that you are more attracted to than your own spouse. Or somebody else's house that that you you wish you had a house. You're living in an apartment or you're renting and you see somebody's house and you're like, oh, I wish I had that. And you get jealousy, envy. Or it could be anything. It says their male servants, their female servants, their oxygen, their car, their job, anything. Their clothing, their wealth the number of followers they have on social media, the success of their ministry, and can be anything. Now, we should be clear, right, that it is perfectly natural and and good to desire certain things. Hey, it's a good thing to want to marry, to have a spouse. It's, It's a fine thing to want to own a home. We shouldn't automatically consider it sinful just because you want to have a good job that provides for your needs or to be successful in that job or to increase your income. Okay, uh, these, we sh- these are not things that in and of themselves we should consider evil and wicked and greedy. But how do you approach those things? The question is, do you set your desires upon them? Do you set your hope upon them for life? Are you fixated on possess- possessing them as your, really your hope for peace? I will not be happy until I, or unless I have this thing. And it begins to consume you. Instead of you, it's not just you possessing this thing, but it begins to possess you. Are you, you become discontent with God's good portion for you, and instead you begin looking with an envious eye with what your neighbor has, and it feels like an injustice. Why do they get that and I don't? How come life seems so easy for them and not for me? How come their kids obey and my don't? How come, and you could just go on the list. There's a lot of things going on in your heart with this kind of thing. So Jesus warns us, right? He says, hey, this is very important. Guard against this. Be watchful. Stand guard over your heart. Do not let any kind of covetousness in because it is dangerous. 
far more dangerous than you think. And honestly, a lot of times it is these heart sins that are more dangerous than even the physical ones, okay? Stealing starts with covetousness. Adultery starts with covetousness. You want what you don't have and what you think you deserve. I'm going to give you eight dangers of covetousness real quick. Why is it dangerous? Number one, it sins against God because you despise His sovereignty and providence over you. Christians, we understand that everything that you have is a good gift from God. Everything that you have, your clothes, your house, your spouse, your health, your life, your job, everything is given to you by God. And we believe that this wasn't willy-nilly. He didn't just pull stuff out of a lottery, right? That he has a sovereign power and he has a will and he's given to you just as he has decided. At this point in your life, and it may change. Your wealth may go up, it may go down, you know. But at this point in your life, he has given you what he desires for you, right? And there's a certain place in your life where you can say, you know, you have the freedom and the responsibility to steward that, to grow that, to say, hey, God, you've given me this home, and I want to take good care of it. I want to, you know, maybe build up its value. I want to keep it clean, right? I want to, you know, do what I can to make the, va- the property more value. I want to use this for ministry and host life groups. I want to be hospitable and use it to bring people in the kingdom. Like, you can use the things God gives you whatever it is, for his glory, for the good of others, and for your own enjoyment. You are free to do that. You are encouraged to do that, right? He gives people different amounts of things. What you are not free to do is say, God, what you've given me is not good enough. God, I am disappointed with you because of what you've given me. God, I think that you have wronged me. You've made a mistake. And that's kind of what covetous is doing. It says, God, you've given me this thing, it's not good enough for me. That alone is a dangerous thing to, to, to have in your heart towards God. So secondly, it kills gratitude, right? You can never, if, you, if you're at a place where you can never say, God, thank you so much for this thing. Thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for this gift. And everything should be received as a gift. And this kills that ability to do that. Have you ever given your... your somebody a gift, something that meant a lot to you that you're like, you're so excited to give it, could be a spouse or a friend or a child, and you give that to them, and they just seem indifferent, like, oh, thanks. It's frustrating, right? You're like, hey, I've given you this good gift, and you don't care, or, or they're like, oh, well, I really wanted the bigger version of this. You're like, are you serious? <laughs> I will give you nothing from now on. But covetousness does that towards God. It kills our gratitude. And thirdly, it makes contentment impossible. If you're always wanting more, if what you have is never good enough, then you will never enjoy the things you have, right? It is God's will for you that you would enjoy his good gifts. That's actually what he wants when he, the things that he gives you are for your good to enjoy. And if you're always complaining, oh my goodness, this is not good enough. I really wish I had that. Oh, my neighbor's house has this. I wish I had that. Or, you know, my car, you know, it runs, but this is... Stop! You're never going to be able to enjoy it if you're always complaining about it. Covetousness steals joy and gives you nothing in return. Fourthly, it fails to produce good stewardship. You know, those who are always looking for more are bad stewards of what you already have. You're not growing it. You're not using it to the best of your ability. You know, God gives you good, good gifts wisely to use, as I said, for His glory, for your good and the good of others, and for your enjoyment. That's stewardship. 
Covetousness just bypasses that completely. So those good gifts are ignored, despised, and left stagnant. God's gifts are left on the shelf, underdeveloped, and no one benefits from them. Number five, it creates hatred for your neighbor rather than love. You know, know, when, when somebody in our congregation, when somebody in your family gets something good, you know, gets, buys a new house, gets married, you know, uh, gets a college degree, gets a new job, gets a promotion. How about that? Are you able to celebrate with them? Or do you feel like, oh, I wish I had that? Man, God, God calls us to be able to rejoice with those who rejoice, to celebrate God's goodness towards others and be thankful for the things that we have, right? But if you're always looking with an evil, envious eye, then you are unable to fulfill the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Six, it stirs up other sinful thoughts and desires. Guys, sin starts in the heart, but it rarely ever stays there, right? It, the sin, heart sins break out into the world and create all kinds of of evil consequences. Coveting stirs up other sinful thoughts and emotions in us, right? Envy and bitterness and greed, pride, slander. When you start maybe speaking like, oh, they don't really deserve that. They didn't earn that. You start talking about that person behind their back. Sloth, well, I'm never going to get anything. I'm just going to be lazy and not not work for anything. Complaining, scheming like I'm going to find a way to get this thing. Bitterness, it could even give way to theft, Covetousness stirs up other sins. Seven, it leads to sinful planning, as I said, right? If you continually want something what somebody else has and you believe you deserve it and you foster that, eventually you're going to act on that and you may do something sinful or foolish to get it. Eight, and this is really kind of the, this this should really open up our eyes a bit, but covetousness is a hunger that cannot be quenched until you're consumed. You know one of the ironies of covetousness, of greed, is that it's one of the only sins that doesn't even have like a little bit of joy to it. Like sexual lust, okay, there is at least on the front end a little bit of enjoyment that you get as you behold the human figure, right? Now it's going to destroy you and destroy marriages and lives, but at least on the front end there's that taste of happiness, When you steal something that doesn't belong to you, the person who steals, they get some short-term benefit, whether that's money or a possession, a car or something, they get some short-term benefit, right? Lying. When somebody lies, right, you may get a little bit of peace, like, whew, if I got caught there, I would have been in big trouble. And there's there's the, the false peace of, I escaped the consequences. Covetousness gives, like, no benefit, All you do is get bitter and angry, and you want, and you want, and you want, and you never get. So it's this this sin that just consumes you in the end. It eats you alive. It's a bitter poison. So it's with good reason that Jesus warns us against covetousness, right? He says the value of your life doesn't rely upon the things that you have. Your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. In fact, it's often just the opposite. I spoke with a brother this week who expressed how, you know, for the first 10, 15 years of marriage, he really struggled, you know, with worrying about finances, right? Money, money was tight, you know, and it always caused him kind of anxiety and stress. And he's finally, after so many years approaching middle age, got to a place where it's like, oh, 
I feel like I have like room to breathe. You know, I have more money in my bank account than I've ever had before. And there's like a sense, you know, of, hey, there, there's joy there. But he said, you know, it's kind of funny. Like this anxiety and the stress is like still there. <laughs> Does anybody else relate to that? That, you know, you think, man, if I just had a few extra hundred dollars a month, you're looking at your budget and you're like, man, if I just had a little more margin, I would be at peace. And do you ever, you ever notice that? Do you ever get a raise or do you ever come into money, you get your tax return, something happens and you're like, oh, this is great. And then for like 10 minutes later, all that money, right? You're like, oh, it's, it's filled up. Like oh, now, now it's a portion somewhere. It's, it's, it's gone somewhere because something else broke or there's a new bill or something. And you're like, oh, now comes that stress again. We tend to think if I just had a little more, just had a little more, a little more, then I'd be at peace, then I'd be secure. It never really gets there. I've heard of another man uh, who had a successful career, came to retirement age, saved up, and became a millionaire. Set aside money and, and, and all this wealth saved up so he could live the life that he wanted to, could, could enjoy all the things he'd been looking forward to for 25 plus years, and finally got to a place, and you'd think that there would be peace there, but instead there's anxiety because there's fear he may not have enough. And he's very, very tight with money, not sure that, he, that he's going to have enough to live and do the things he wants to do. His wealth, his great wealth has not brought him peace. I contrast that. When I was in high school, I, I went uh, with uh, my youth group and went to an orphanage in Brazil. And, uh, and I, I remember going there, and I saw children who had no wealth, no families, I remember going, and we were, we were helping clean, we were playing with kids, we did all kinds of stuff, but they told us, hey, when you clean, uh, if you see like a ball of string on the ground, you see like a rubber band, do not throw that away. Because for some kids, that's like the only toy that they have. Right? Don't, don't throw that thing away. And I remember at the end of the trip, if, if you've been on mission trips, maybe you've witnessed this before, but I saw such a joy in those kids' eyes and in their faces and they had nothing. But they, there was a sense of contentment with them because they knew they were loved. And they were surrounded with, with joy. And I've seen, I remember, I've seen more joy in a kid playing with a rubber band in poverty than I have in a lot of teenagers with an $800 phone in front of their face. Because our possessions, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And it's a lie that Satan has been using for thousands of years because it works. That if I just have a little more, a little more expensive, if I upgrade, then I'll be happy. Covetousness is a restless condition of the heart. It's a sin that is common to both rich people and poor people and everything in between. We're always wanting more, always wanting what we don't have, not trusting God for our needs and thanking Him, but instead being discontent. So Jesus says, guard your heart. Watch out for this. Don't let covetousness in. Don't believe the lie that more is always better for your life and your hope and your joy are in the Lord, not in material gain. The Holy Spirit writing through Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of it. Amen? So now we actually get to the parable. I know it was a long time getting there. But Jesus says, I'm going to tell a story to help drive this point home. So in verse 16, he begins telling the story 
of a, of a rich man's field and how it produces a great crop and how he responds to it. And we have a lesson here that even if, you know, even if you get what you covet, here's the thing, you, you always hunger and you want something, but even when you get it, it doesn't guarantee the good life that you want. And so we see in this parable that, uh, that uh, the land of a rich man produces great crop. The subject in that sentence is the land, not the man. That, that his land produces a great increase in crops. And already you kind of see at the beginning of this parable that who is the one who really is giving the increase? Who is the one who's blessing this man's field and causing it to grow? It's God. God has blessed this man and supplied him with a really great harvest this year. Secondly, it's the land of a rich man. It's not a poor man. It's not somebody in this story who is just like at the end of his rope. It's somebody who is already wealthy, already living comfortably. God has blessed him with wealth, and here he has blessed him with even more wealth for the sake of this story. But then it presents a problem. This man thinks, well, what am I going to do with this? I don't have enough space in my current barns for all the grain that I have. What am I going to do? So he decides to himself, here's what I'll do. I'm going to tear down my current barns and I'm going to build bigger barns, right, to house all my grain and all my goods. I I just need a bigger storehouse. And he actually speaks to his own soul. And I, I love that Jesus does this. Like this man literally goes, soul, let's have a conversation about this. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. Notice what he does here in Jesus' story. He thinks to himself. He plans for himself. He speaks to his own soul. He speaks to himself. He does not thank God. He does not seek God. He does not ask for God's wisdom. He does not consult God. There is no prayer. Lord, you have poured out blessing upon blessing. I have more than I could ever want or need. How shall I use this great harvest? How can I save it or, or give it away or spend it or enjoy it for your glory? God, give me wisdom. There's none of that. There's scheming and planning and ha-ha. God has given me, I, I have received something good, and now I can do whatever I want with it. Now, now he speaks of this, you know, even my barns. My grains, my good, it belongs to the Lord, right, who owns heaven and earth. But this man doesn't see himself as a steward of God's good gift to him. Instead, you know, he never even considers that. There's no heart of stewardship. It's my life, says the man. I'm looking forward to doing what I want to do. (laughs) Early retirement, cocktail by the pool, sleep till noon, the finest restaurants. I can live even higher on the hog for years. He gets a little bit of blessing. And immediately, he spends it on his lusts. He's been coveting maybe just a little more. I'm already rich, but just a little more, just a little more. And then I can live out my full desires. Then I can clear out my save for later list. But God responds in this parable by speaking to the man, saying, Fool, tonight your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? This man spoke to his own soul, had his own plans, but ultimately at the end, it's not what you say to your soul, it's what does God say to your soul. God's going to have the final word here. And he calls him a fool. 
This is interesting, too, because this man, if you read this, it seems like he's actually doing what's, what's wise. Hey, you have an increase. You've thought about how you want to use it. You've made plans. You built up infrastructure, right? You, you built bigger barns, right? You planned how you're going to use them. It seems like, honestly, a good retirement plan. <laughs> Isn't that what the world wants? There's a sidebar. What is this addressing? Is, this, is it a sin to collect wealth? Is it a sin to, to set aside money for retirement? Not necessarily. I don't think this parable is condemning retirement because all of us will reach a time in our life where, where, where working physical labor or any kind of labor to provide for our needs will, will be not something that we're able to do. Our bodies will begin to fail, our minds will begin to fail a bit, and the working years come to a close for all of us if we live long enough. So it's actually a responsible and wise thing to plan ahead, to set money aside, to provide for, our, for others, for ourselves in later years and not be a burden to others. There's actually a responsibility. We see this that Paul writes to the churches and encourages there are situations where the church is responsible to take care of widows, when, when, when her husband has died, he's no longer able to provide for her. But the, the idea is, though, like, if, if that's not the case, that even in old age, it's people are responsible to care for themselves, and that takes careful planning. However, so I don't think this passage is saying, hey, retirement is a sin. I don't believe that. But I do think it confronts us to how we think about and approach retirement. Retirement offers new freedoms. You're no longer at a place in life where you're raising children, where you're working full-time. You may actually have the blessing of having paid off your house or gotten rid of a mortgage and you have fewer bills. You have a lot more free time. And how do you intend to use it? How do you intend to use that great harvest, that great increase? Will you say, oh, finally I can do what I want to do? Or will you say, Lord, what will you have me do at this stage of life? You've blessed me abundantly. You've provided for all my needs. How can I use what remains of my life, my energy, my resources to enjoy what you've given me, but to serve you well? This man never had that thought. He was ready to live it up, and little did he know that he wouldn't get to enjoy even one day of it, because he was going to die that very night. The warning of Jesus is said in another place, Mark 8, 36, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and forfeits his soul. Literally, if you gained everything, if you were king of the entire world and gained everything, there was literally nothing else for you to own or possess. What would you gain if you had it all, but you lost your soul? And so Jesus, in this, he actually warns this, this man. You know, or God is calling out to him. He says, your soul will be forfeit this very night. And then even and then the, the sting is even more. It's all these things that you've lusted for, all these things that you've, you've built up for yourself and you thought would give you the good life and would ensure security and peace, whose are they going to be now? Not yours, because you can't take it with you. I mean, he doesn't even mention like hell or anything else. Like that's the sting right here. What you've been working for and lusting for and coveting for and you finally get, it's no guarantee of the good life. Because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. All his wealth would go to somewhere else. It wouldn't bless or preserve him. And this leaves us with a warning that those who seek the world's riches, even if you acquire them, 
will be disappointed in the end. But there are those who, who seek the Lord, and that's what he calls us to do. He says, so is, this will happen to the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And that is what, what Jesus is calling you to today. It, honestly, it doesn't matter if you have a lot of money in your bank account or you are scraping by. If you have a lot of retirement saved up or you've not even started, right? If, if, you, don't, if you have a part-time or a full-time job, this is still true for you because coveting is a poison that can affect anyone in any area. He says you can be rich towards God, and you ought to be, to store up treasures in heaven, to treasure Him, to know that if you have the true and living God as your God, you are richer than the richest man on earth, that you possess a greater treasure. And by the way, other parables speak to this. It's like a man who, who, who finds treasure in a field, and he sells all that he has. He doesn't want what the world has anymore. He buys that field so he can dig it up and have that treasure, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the pearl of great price, of great value that is found once you find that your treasure is in the true and living God, all the other treasures of the world begin to fade away. They don't, have, they don't hold as much as they used to. Those who seek after God, who are rich in Him, you will be richly provided for, and you will not be disappointed. And I'm just going to put it this way. So if you are, this is specifically for you, if you're kind of middle-aged or you're older, let me put it this way, just to maybe alleviate some, some, some fears about this. God has an amazing retirement package for you. <laughs> He's already set it up. It isn't subject to the ups and downs of the market. It isn't affected by inflation. Okay? Jesus tells us that he has gone away to prepare a place for us. And that in his Father's house there are many rooms and he's preparing a place for you. And he calls you to store up treasures in heaven where thieves do not steal, where moth does not destroy, where rust does not destroy. You will literally inherit the world. There is a new heavens and a new earth after Jesus returns and you who believe in him will have an inheritance in God's kingdom, right? Matthew 25, 34. So you will be resurrected in glory and awarded a kingdom. Your retirement ultimately is set. Christ is calling us to hold loosely to this world because in Christ, when he, is, when he died for your sins, when he resurrected for you to have new life, he has promised you a glorious inheritance that you could not buy, that you couldn't purchase, that you couldn't earn. It is a free gift of God's grace for those who have faith in him. He is a great king, and he calls you to, be, to come into his kingdom by faith and to receive it as sons and daughters. And this inheritance... You will, it's far more glorious. It can't be lost. It lasts forever. And Jesus is preparing it for you. So you don't have to. It actually, that, if, you, if you live out of that, it frees you to not have to long for more and more and more in this world because you possess all things in Christ. And I think if you live towards that, it can allow you to say, you know what? Even if life gets tight and uncomfortable, I trust that my God will provide for me. By the way, if you just want to keep reading on this, the very next verse in verse 22, that section says, is where Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear or where you're going to live. Your Father in heaven knows you need all those things. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Amen?
And so, congregation, I, I call you to trust in your God who has provided His Son for you to save you, to redeem you, to draw you to Him forever. He has no intention of letting you waste away. He has no intention of leaving you in the gutter. He has provided richly for you. If He has given His Son for you, if He has promised you a glorious inheritance, all things, He knows your needs. He can provide for you here and now. And the gifts that He has given for you, let that be enough for now. If you, godliness and contentment is great gain. Be rich towards God. Let me pray. Father, I thank you. Lord, you are so good to us. Lord, like a good father, you have given us gift upon gift. You have given us grace upon grace. Lord, you have richly provided for us. And God, I, I know that there are people here who, who are struggling right now, who, who have bills and, and debt, Lord, that, that just makes them scared, Lord. I think we, many of us have been there. God, I pray for those who are struggling, Lord, who are worried that you would give them peace, that you would provide for them richly, God, and in so build their faith. Lord, I pray for those who already have much and just simply want more, God, that you would convict their hearts and show them your goodness. Lord, help us all to guard against that covetousness, that longing, that desire for more stuff. Instead, help our hearts to be set upon you, to enjoy your goodness. Lord, to desire a seat at your table, to delight in your bounty. Oh God, help us to be a people who give you glory by appreciating your good gifts and praising you for them. We ask this in the name of Jesus, your Son.